Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast where we talk about plant science. I'm Tegan. Hello, I'm Joram. <laughs> and here we are again, another day, another, <laughs> wait, donut, something. Is that the saying, another day, another donut? That's probably the saying. Uh, <laughs> what have you been up to, Joram? Oh, um, actually, I didn't think about what I've been really up to. I've just I have this massive block of notes that I took. So many notes <laughs> because you you wanted me to watch the movie Little Joe, and I mm. finally did. I did like two weeks ago, and yeah, um, we we were busy busy and had other stuff to do. So now it's the time I think to talk about this um, because I will not let this go because you you made me watch this movie. <laughs> I should I should mention that it's not my fault. It's actually somebody. <laughs> I know told me to watch it and ask my opinion and then I was I started watching it I watched half of it um quite late at night and then I, I was like Yoram you have to also just but I actually looked back in our show notes and apparently like two years ago when it came out we did discuss like we, we have discussed this and then we immediately forgot about it None, neither of us watched it so now we finally watched it yeah um okay so we have just a page of you ranting I guess this is you <laughs> no, know no. everybody skip forward a few minutes Yoram's gonna go on a rant <laughs> I mean, first of all, um, we will have it? some spoilers in here. So if you want to watch the movie, and I can tell you already that you might not want to watch the movie. But if you do want to watch the movie, you can just skip the intro bit and you, jump you know into what? the paper I... chapter mark that you'll find in your podcast player. Um, but I don't. Th I think you'll get more out of us discussing the, f the movie than actually watching it yourself. So just stay with us. That's really harsh. That's very harsh. I think, I mean, there's, I've seen these sort of uh, choice diagrams of, you know, does the dog die in the movie? Spoiler alert, the dog does die in this movie. So if you're a dog person, maybe not the, do not the, not the dog for you, not the film for you. I, I want to mention, so maybe a quick background of what the movie is. It's sort of a plant sci-fi kind of, it's not really horror, it's more sort of like eerie sci-fi. Um, yeah, or mystery movie. It was it was labeled as horror in the place where I rented it, but it was it had not, no horror elements whatsoever. To yeah, me. all of the gore happened off, like any gore that did happen, happened off screen. Um, and it wasn't even with a gory aim. Well, the <laughs> gore was the dog got murdered. Like, yeah, but it was very off screen. <laughs> we're going to say. I go back to that. Um, yeah, it's 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 very it's got that sci-fi. It, it's really backed up by this like eerie, deliberately eerie soundtrack that um, goes throughout. I don't think I don't. We don't want to spend like twenty minutes on this. No. Can, can we can we talk about so the basic plot, Yaron? What's the basic plot? The basic plot is that there is a company. They made a plant, and the plant makes people happy with um, a hormone that they are excreting or hormone precursor that they're excreting. Mm -hmm. People get happy and then weird stuff happens where people try to care for these plants and try to protect these plants. Um, mm. Although, in my opinion, that's just their job. They are literally working at a plant breeding company <laughs> that cares for plants to sell them. And this is what they do. But there's some like weird behavior and there's a whole of, lot of open questions throughout the movie. It's, it's For me, it's like this toxoplasmosis thing. You know, there's like this... Yeah parasite that the cats have and they found that people who have this parasite already are more likely to like cats but it's like yeah of course like those people were already like rubbing a cat's bum onto their face and that's how they got it in the first it's not like which is the chicken and which is the egg here i yeah. mean so yeah maybe these people already loved plants a little bit so um, i think so according to the movie there's a strong chemical effect this is what we yeah. believe from the film so you have to talk to the plant and then the plant will love you back um and then and there's also some family drama yeah but 
And the key is that it's genetically modified, the plant. Yeah. It's it's not like they didn't breed it. They sort of, you know, used some brand new vectors that are somehow virus derived and are therefore a bit terrifying. Yeah. Um, the... <laughs> Yeah, so the main the main concerns I had about the film is just the blatant rules of of GMO safety and <laughs> plant lab work that they're breaking. So this woman uses a vector that she cannot legally use yeah. to make the plant. Spoiler alert. They they have dogs wandering around the greenhouse. I spent the entire first 20 minutes of the film just screaming at the like but like to be screaming, fair, why is the dog in the greenhouse? Why is there a dog in the greenhouse? I, I was also screaming that, but then it's re- revealed later that it's an emotional support animal. And maybe for emotional support animals, you can have exceptions. But it was really it was really in the greenhouse where the plants are. In the you, greenhouse. Yeah, <laughs> Inside not, the greenhouse. Not only on the corridors, outside the glass doors, but really where the plants are, where it can get the pollen, where it can get the transmissible particles, and then... Just walk Spoiler about. Spoiler alert, the dog gets pollened. <laughs> pollened. Yeah. Um, so the plant is like pollinating thing. It's like just, yeah, releasing its seed into the wind and people are getting pollen up their noses and then they basically fall in love with the, the plant. Yeah. And somehow the dog falls in love with the plant and then because of that, its owner chooses to kill it, which also... Why? Okay, and the other thing I want is like... So she, <laughs> sorry. She uses this vector she's not allowed to use. The dog is in the freaking greenhouse, and then she takes one of her experimental plants home, which in itself is already insane. Like, you should keep that in a... Like, insane. But then she also just tells her bosses that she, A, stole their private property, and B, like, broke all of the rules of, like... GMO safety, like, and also, if also, you're she stupid ta- enough to. Sorry, she she takes the plant home and then exposes on purpose her, her child. child to the plant that emits a neuroactive chemical that on purpose, like that was what they bred yeah. it for. It wasn't an accident. They didn't know that it was happened. It was on purpose. They they have the plant emitting a neuroactive chemical and then she gives it to her, her son and um, who's like I mean, t- think- 12 or 14 years or something like that. And it's like, here, care for this plant, be around this plant that will change your brain chemistry. Um which One is, of the subplots is like whether she kind of wants to get rid of her son, which I also I didn't like because it was kind of like, oh, she likes her work and therefore she must like, there was this kind of like, does she love her work too much and her son not enough, which I think is probably true. She she names her experimental plant after her son, which is a bit of a diss on the son, I would say, but just like... And was also insane then that the company used then the name. It was first in the movie as if that was only her personal thing. It's just her weirdness that she has a son called Joe, and then she calls the plant Little Joe, um, and you thought it's sort of with her, but then later the company calls the plant the Little Joes, um, which also <laughs> makes no sense. And it's like, Ma, that's the name of my genitalia. <laughs> like, what? Uh, it was that was many weird things happening. But, but um, there's, okay. there's a couple of things I, I think that I want to discuss here in the in the respect of of the science because. The movie in itself, the, the plot moves very slowly. I ended up watching it on 1.5 times the speed just to get through it because it's incredibly slow and okay, hardly not, anything happens. Okay, we're not happens. criticizing the movie. But the question the is science, about the science. The science I found actually exciting because what they're using, the, the, the thing that the plant is emitting is an oxytocin precursor. And usually when you have in movies plants or anything doing something with human hormones, it's, it's completely made up. They say... Mm-hmm. This this thing was bred with 
uh, one chemical that gives you the strength of a, a thousand super soldiers or something like this. Um, mm. But in this case, I actually looked it up. Oxytocin um, is made from a um, polypeptide precursor, and polypeptides are very easily put into the genome. Um, you okay. just need a gene for the polypeptide, and then it's m made by the organism that you put it into. So you absolutely could put the precursor of oxytocin into a plant and then potentially send it with genetic signals to um, the, the pollen or the nectar or some volatile fraction. I was going to say it's, it's volatile, but I don't think it has to even be volatile. It can be like inside the pollen somehow. It yeah. Can be, yeah, it doesn't have to be like... So this is yeah. absolutely plausible what, what they're doing there. So we, we totally could do that. And also the whole story about the viral vector, I mean, they, they use that because viruses are a little bit scary. Um but we do use viral-derived systems in the lab to do genetic modifications. I don't know if we did do that in plants so much. Uh, I never came across a viral system in plants, but I know that in other organisms um, it's totally possible. No, but I mean, we're, like, we're constantly doing transformations using E. coli, so it's like a bacteria, but those E. coli have been modified yeah. to not be dangerous to people. So I think... Yeah, okay, fine. So, so yeah, the, the existence of the fine. viral system, that, that's, that's scientifically accurate. The fact that they suspect it to mutate, that's one thing where they think... Is it, did they the, expect it to mutate? Or did yeah, you just, the, they expect it to mutate and then they think the sort of the toxicity of the plant comes from the viral vector and not from the oxytocin that the plant emits, um, is what they speculate. Um, uh, and this is something that is probably completely impossible because usually when you use a viral system, you remove like completely cut out all of the genes that are pot potentially pathogenic. So it can't okay. just evolve backwards um, in a couple of generations and then suddenly be dangerous again. Um, then we would never use it in a lab. Okay, so you're happy about the the fact that they have a viral vector. You're happy about the oxytocin. You've also got here that you're happy about the the fact that they're the plants are made to be infertile. Yeah, this yeah. is kind of a common thing in breeding, like especially like male infertile. That's kind of helpful. That's yeah, fine. That's that's also fine. Um, it's weird that the 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 senior plant breeder, um, who is the one with the dog, she calls it unnatural that the plants can't reproduce that yeah. they're infertile, which is really weird because if you are a senior expert plant breeder, you have to know that breeding fertile plants is extremely common and extremely useful. Well, I think the the, the plot line there is that that person has had a bit of like a mental breakdown. It looks like they've been overworked and they've sort of hit a stress place, which they, they don't really deal with super well in the film. I wish they had like that kind of bugged me because I think like, yeah. I mean, yeah, stress, anxiety, depression, like this is very, very common in, in research. I feel like, and then the, she's also taking medicines and they sort of make a few kind of snarky comments about, oh, the medicines now are affecting her, her brain. And this seems to have also moved her into a way where because of her, her mental breakdown, she's become more like esoteric and more, oh, you know, this is the natural way of the world. We shouldn't interrupt and interfere with nature. And I didn't super enjoy that as a sort of yeah. plot device. Like, I'm not really that happy about using, like, yeah. mental health issues as a plot device, generally. <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, so science-wise, those things you're happy with, what are you unhappy with? You already mentioned the idea of the vector becoming pathogenic. You didn't really like what else was not great. Yeah, the, the whole plot point about the plants requiring love and being spoken to to thrive. This has mm. been There have been countless of experiments around this, and we just know 
plants don't care if we speak to them. There's a whole, a whole lot of study about these micro vibrations and stuff, and we had this before on the podcast and also on our blog. So they can send sound in some way, but they don't care if you speak nice things to them. Um, and probably if you speak at all, but there is some Also sound in sensing. the movie, there seemed to be a lot of sort of staring into each other's eyes as it were, like the kid yeah. was staring at the plant, the plant was staring at the kid. It was a very like yeah. loving staring moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that that's happening. I mean, I stare lovingly at my plants a lot, but I don't know if it does them any good. Yeah. And what I really don't understand is how... The, the main protagonist could keep her job after taking a plant out of <laughs> an unregulated and an unregulated plant stealing property <laughs> like this is like the the highly valuable private property of a company and again like exposing her child to it but like all of those things i i believe i believe i believe and then just like turning around and being like oh yes i stole it what are you gonna do about it yeah what they're gonna do about it is fire you and put you in jail that's what they're gonna like (laughs) everything else was actually believably stupid but the point where she was like oh yeah i actually already took one of them and using that as justification for why like she said because they were like oh this could be dangerous she's like well it's not dangerous i already gave my child one i stole one it's like that's (laughs) not justification that the plant's not dangerous it's justification that you are dangerous and should be taken off this case like this is not how you justify (laughs) the plant like this is an interesting argument, but it's not the right one for this scenario. Yeah. Um, and I think the, f- the last thing that, that is important to me about this movie is that the entire premise is... Why is, is there a dog in the greenhouse? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that of course, but also the whole premise of why would you make such a plant? They made an airborne, randomly dosed antidepressant um, that is inhaled by humans in unknown quantities, and then they just expect that it won't have any bad implications. Mm. We antidepressants are one of the the things that have so carefully be adjusted to everyone who takes them you can't just have a plant in a room that's emitting antidepressant pollen into the air and then expect that nobody will have any bad side effects from it um so the, the while they try so hard to be scientifically accurate it's such a stupid idea in the first place to make this kind of plant and that's why i think nobody ever made to our knowledge the oxy- uh, oxytocin precursor emitting plant even though it's technically possible to do that it's inherently stupid to do so and um yeah okay so so okay <laughs> Bottom line, you reckon it's not not super impossible, but very stupid. Um, the question that I was asked, and I'm now going to pass on to you because I, I'm too lazy to think of my own questions. Um, do you think this film in particular is driving sort of negative ideas about GMOs? Like, and not just sort of generally in a vacuum, but compared to other films that have famously featured, for example, genetically modified dinosaurs or other things like that. I think in this case, it's even worse than, for example, like a Jurassic Park thing, because in Jurassic Park, they just had bad safety measures, but there are people actively working on bringing back extinct animals, and we can see some benefit in that. There's a lot of ethical questions about it, but overall... But you're talking about the OG Jurassic Park. Like, in the newer ones, they're mixing up, like, Velociraptor blood with, like, some random yeah. animal that can, like, blend into the... Like, can become camouflaged completely and has, like, the cloak of invisibility encoded in its DNA. Like, they're mixing <laughs> shit up. Hard, like, <laughs> hardcore mixing. So that's... They've got quite, like, a... 
Yeah. Oh no, we've G- GM'd it beyond our understanding, kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That. I mean, these. And even things- in even in the first one, I think the reason the life uh, 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 found a way was because they put some frog DNA, like they filled in the missing gaps with like some sort of amphibian DNA. And I'm pretty sure at one point Jeff Goldblum is like, "Oh, some frogs can change sex, like if the temperature or like." Yeah. If exactly. They no, only want to have female dinosaurs, and then they get some males in there as well um, yeah. by accident by nature finding but it might way. be that like sneaky frog dna or whatever it was yeah anyway sorry yeah but over but overall i think this this movie in particular does paint um <laughs> a bad image of genetically modified plants because they yeah they just are these my, mysterious potentially bad things although it's still the if you watch the movie you can still come out with the conclusion that the plants didn't do any anything Pretty much all of the events there can be explained with other explanations apart from the, the pollen made them go crazy. Um, but yeah, I think this one rather caters also, to also the just, fear of GMO. Just, just to point out, the one lady who didn't get pollinated was the one who murdered the dog. So like, I don't know if we're like yardsticking crazy in this film. Like this is... <laughs> yeah, so I just would not recommend to watch this movie apart from... Like not only is the is the premise kind of stupid, it's also incredibly boring to watch. So I mean, I think I have I have another point on the GMO. So for me, the difference between this and the dinosaurs is that there's a very clear like we know dinosaurs are not happening right now. I mean, whatever you say, people are trying to bring back extinct animals, sure, but like we're not going to have T Rexes like leaping through our apartments anytime soon. Whereas we do have access to genetically modified plants. So I think like for me, there's a bit more the the separation between this and reality is smaller just because we already have GM plants and I think that adds more of like a a realistic fear where people can mix up what happens in this film with mm-hmm. reality and I've I've done I've done like workshops for like scientific education stuff for high school kids and I've had them ask me questions like oh well, could you genetically modify a plant to be carnivorous and it would like chase people and eat them and potentially they've just been watching you know too much Little Shop of Horrors or Day of the Triffids or whatever but that's a bit closer to reality than maybe a dinosaur. Again, yeah. maybe those ones not so much, but maybe these ones are a little bit closer to reality than a dinosaur. So maybe that's the issue here. Yeah, I think so. It's it's um, yeah because it's so so much more so much closer to reality. It feels so much more dangerous and risky what what they're doing. Um, and I mean it's. As I said, it's stupid what they're doing, and nobody should do what they're doing, even though it's it's technically possible. But this is what then p- people are afraid of. Or oh, behind closed doors, the breeders are making antidepressant plants that make people go crazy. Um, so, I think overall, this is if you consider the sort of the case or uh, of of uh, genetic modification in plants, this is more of a harmful movie that caters to fear rather than a movie that is uh, informative and and normalizing the use of of GMO and showing how they are just another tool in in the in the tool belt of plant breeders. Yeah. Okay, two star? <laughs> One star. I I I wow, I never okay. I never ever before watched a movie on higher speed because I think then everything gets worse usually but this movie was unbearable on 1x speed i had to speed it up just because all of the scenes were so incredibly dragged out and just from a filmmaking point of view 
no, just no. <laughs> okay, so I would argue that film has a lot of value then because you can then discuss at length why the dog is in the greenhouse with your <laughs> friends and family. <laughs> and I like that. It's like when you go and see um, like contemporary art, like this really modern stuff, and you're like... <laughs> it was ridiculous. So now let's have a five-hour conversation about why. <laughs> yeah, but what was going on there? <laughs> but it's also um, I've I've seen other movies where you can that are just weird and that have lots of open questions, and in the end you discuss it, and that makes them interesting. That makes them interesting. In this movie, there's very little that's really open for discussion where you can have a meaningful discussion about it. Most of it is just why is there a dog, and why did she immediately kill the dog why after did she it? Kill it the like, dog? It barked at her once and was a little bit angry how a dog could be, for example, if it's sick. And she's immediately going to the doctor. The doctor says, your dog is fine. And she's like, no, it's not my dog. And then she has it put down. So that's the only open question of this movie. Why is she immediately killing the dog after the question of why is it in the greenhouse in the first place? <laughs> I mean, see, I got a lot of joy out of that. I was just screaming, dog people are the worst. <laughs> for many hours after that so yeah let's talk about some real science i would say um some real science that really happened and that's not making uh antidepressant plants it's the paper of the week (laughs) so for all of you who have pressed that skip button hard and worked your way here or listened perhaps to our previous conversation on 1.5 speed just as Yoram had to watch the movie on (laughs) 1.5 speed we're now talking about the paper of the week it's something that came out in the plant cell actually at the end of last year um but it's well, it's published at the end of November and it's in this month's issue I don't understand how publications dates work um (laughs) Me neither. I was looking at it. I was just like, what? Uh, why? <laughs> I was looking for articles like last month and there was stuff that was published in December 2022. And I was like, time is already confusing enough, guys. Like, this is not an appropriate way to do things. Like, what? Okay. Um, the paper was came out in the plant cell. It's by Jonathan Hook and colleagues. It is bypassing reproductive barriers in hybrid seeds using chemically induced epimutagenesis. So not mm-hmm. just mutagenesis, but epimutagenesis. And I think we can go in at that first. So this is mutagenesis, which is targeting the epigenome, mm-hmm. um, which just to mention, you know, genome, you've got your DNA. Epigenome is those little bedazzling bits. So decoration that's put onto the DNA. Um, so it's not a change to the code, the ATCNG, it's little little jewels on, on the... Yeah the edges of the DNA. That's how we sort of always describe it, I think. Yeah, and we know from other research in the past that these things can have big impacts, but I think this is also one of the parts in the whole world of genetics uh, that we have the least understood. Um, There's so much happening there right now in terms of research, and this is one of the papers that, to me, was a surprising finding um, of the effect of the epigenome and its like changing the epigenome. Mm -hmm. So basically, why why do they even care about this? Why do they want to bypass the reproductive barriers? Maybe we can first discuss why plants would even have reproductive barriers. Um, Basically, this is saying that not all plants can can breed with all other plants. Mm -hmm. What's what's happening here? 
Um, yeah, plants, there are species boundaries and even within species you have boundaries from different cultivars or different accessions um, that technically belong to the same species, but they, you, you mix them together, you put pollen from one plant to ovules um, of the other plant and they just make um, non-viable offspring. So the, for example, the seeds collapse, which is something we also see in this paper. So the, the seeds just don't grow. And in some of the cases, it comes down to an effect of the chromosome numbers. So uh, usually we talk about uh, diploid, um, uh, a diploid genomes. So that means you have one copy of all of the, um, no, technically two copies, I'm saying like one original and one <laughs> copy. So you have two entities of, en of all of the chromosomes. So you have two bits um, and then... Uh, through the uh, meiosis and uh, sexual reproduction, you then mix one half of one uh, of one parent and half of the other parent, and you get an, again two in the offspring. Yeah, so in humans we have these like twenty three chromosomes. That's why there's the genetic testing company called Twenty Three and Me. But it's not twenty three chromosomes. It's actually twenty three pairs, mm -hmm. one from mama, one from papa, and that means you have 46 um, in total. So 23 is the haploid, the sort of half number, and, and the diploid number, the full number, is the 46. Um, and, yeah. sorry. No, but you're right. Um, the plants, uh, but plants are different than humans that they can have multiple copies of the genome. Not only two, but they can have um, multiples of two they can have four six eight and sometimes even more than that but that's rare but um they have multiples of the genome and then when they come together during mating uh, then again you take them half goes from what comes from one parent half comes from the other parent they meet up again in the ovule they make seeds and you have new plants that are happening yeah so because you've got this kind of half and half thing i mean it's sort of a simple way to explain it but it's it's much you tend to have these numbers that are divisible by two um it's less common to have odd numbers it just things get confusing it's really hard to divide odd numbers of chromosomes in half but as Yoram says um with plant species you might have for example one plant species that has the diploid numbers which is sort of like uh two two copies and the other one has the tetraploid which means four and then when you go to make the sex cells, everything divides in half. So now instead of two and four, you've got one and two. But when you put one and two together, you end up with three. And this is just a confusing number and yeah, it doesn't work. Everything gets messed up. And that's basically what they're talking about in this paper. When you get three, a triploid, you get a block. And basically at the point of seed development, everything gets shut down. Um, they just sort of turn it off and they're like, no, we're not going to, this is not viable. We're not going to even try to make this because things will become chaotic Yeah. in the end. Um. Yeah. And this is a problem because sometimes you really, really want to cross plants that have four chromosomes and plants that have two or other combinations of numbers that usually result in um, in a dead seed. So in plant breeding, this is something that you commonly run into when you want to cross in wild relatives into your production lines and stuff like that. And so we just can't do certain things. And this paper set out to um, try to change that. Uh, they had, uh, I think from previous works, it was in, uh, indicated that the methylation, so this bedazzling of the genetic information um, can have an impact on this triploid block, so this, this stop in the production of viable seeds, um, and that potentially the methylation status, so the amount of bedazzling you have on your DNA, uh, could 
make them survive or at least have an impact on the survival. And that's what they set out to test. Yeah, so actually there's been previous studies where they've deliberately screwed around with the the methylation um, and they've found that by doing that they can go forward and not have this triploid block. The only thing is that when you screw around with the methylation in a sort of genetic permanent way, you don't just prevent the triploid block, you end up, you know, having long-term problems that you can't easily fix. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of things that are screwed up all over. So the authors of this paper sort of wanted to do it a little bit more um, non-permanently, <laughs> transiently, just like put some chemicals on... Um, the chemicals should hopefully do the same thing, remove this methylation. Um, that's what the chemicals have already been shown to do. So this is not a new discovery by them. Um, but then they hope that add the chemicals, methylation goes down, can get past that triploid block. And then sometime in the future, without the chemicals, the methylation restores itself to sort of the natural um, state. And that's basically what the paper is showing, that they were adding the chemical. Um, the chemical is called 5-Azacytidine. Um, they put it on during seed germination and they tested to see if they could get through this triploid block. And the one thing that I found uh, fascinating about this chemical, um, which I'm not trying to pronounce again because <laughs> it's complicated, um, but is that it's it acts like a building block of the DNA. It acts like cytosine in pretty much all respects that are important, apart from being able to be methylated. So... The whatever methylates the DNA, just the, the enzymes, they can't put the methyl group on this this guy, and therefore they don't, and therefore methylation status goes down. But apart from that, it just behaves like a cytosine, and so can like during replication of the DNA and reading of the DNA and all of that, it doesn't seem to to cause any problems, which I found uh, pretty cool because then also when you go into the next generations and you don't add the chemical, it's not made by the plant. So it just dilutes itself out of the system. It's gone. The Mm. genetic code is just as it was before. Yeah, so that's one thing that I actually found sort of it's kind of a pro and a con. So on one hand, yeah, you're like, it's, it's very cool mechanistically speaking. But on the other hand, if it had been sort of like a chemical that you can sort of pour over and then, you know, it evaporates off, it would be more rapid. Like the reversion, you would imagine if a sort of a chemical reaction that then can like reverse more rapidly. But this does require kind of the del- and the replacement and I actually I mean they said that there was previous research that showed that it could be the the effects could be sort of bred out quite rapidly could get rid of quite rapidly but in a couple of generations later they did still see that there was still this effect this decreased methylation happening so it's not super rapid Um, and I, I guess that's still fine in the context of sort of breeding super crops or whatever we're doing here you're going to be doing a few generations anyway um but those generations can also take a long time if you're breeding crops that you know take a year to reach seed maturity so i mean there's there's some pros and cons it's really cool mechanistically but it does it wasn't sort of an immediate like add solution a now remove solution a now everything's fixed like yeah. this kind of um thing yeah that is true it requires some biological bio- uh, biology hap- to happen to to get back to normal and yeah as you said i think they used two or three generations and they still only had about um a third of the methylation was what's coming back so two-thirds was still missing um Mm. and they they said like it it requires more testing and longer studies to figure out if it goes back to 100 completely yeah yeah but i mean they did this i i don't know if we said this but they did this in arabidopsis which is a plant that grows fairly quickly um Mm -hmm. so 
um, we can easily test that in Arabidopsis, but yeah, in, in, in maize or wheat or other year uh, with longer growth season, as you said, much more difficult. So the other thing I wanted to mention that's kind of cool about this paper, so to, to test if there is the triploid block, you need to first be making the triploid problem. Um, so Arabidopsis is a diploid plant, um, which, you know, it's got sort of this two copy thing. So you need to sort of find something that is got not the half amount, not the one in the gamete in the pollen or the, the egg cells, but it's got two instead. Um, which would usually be like you're putting another species that has a different number, like mm -hmm. it's not diploid, it's tetraploid. Instead of doing that, instead of finding a tetraploid relative that they could cross in, which would have all these extra problems, they actually used a mutant which already has problems when it makes its pollen and forgets to halve the number of um, chromosomes in the in the pollen so i think like it's the, the mutant is called jason i'm going to come back to that and normally like 30 to 40 percent of the time this jason mutant just like sort of forgets to halve the the number of chromosomes <laughs> yeah. in its pollen and it makes diploid pollen so now you've got like a haploid egg a, a proper egg with half the number of genetic material but you've got a pollen that's still got the two instead of having one and the when you add them together, you get this triploid problem. Yeah. Um, and I want to mention the, the name Jason because you said you didn't know much about this sort of epigenetic effects as they're related to all of these reproductive things. But there's been some studies on them before. And the main sort of mutant that I know of related to this is called Medea. Mm -hmm. um, and Medea is a figure from Greek mythology who famously kills her sons. She like murders her own sons when her husband runs away. And I think this is kind of related to this paternal effect where then like based on the the gene dosage between the mother and the father, you end up with like abortion of the offspring um, <laughs> from the mother line. So that's why the name Madeira is there. And then this is called Jason. And I'm guessing I haven't looked into the paper, but I'm Jason is the, the husband who betrays Madeira. So I guess this is one of those <laughs> things where somebody's named a gene based on like a story in this case, you know, the killing of the sons, filicide, filicide, is that what it's called? And then they've like added extra names <laughs> that are associated with that mythology of the story um, and we've seen that in other genes as well where you get like little clusters like um, Scarecrow the Scarecrow genes there's like a few yeah you're the expert on weird gene names oh, you goodness. always come up with them um, and find them yeah but it's like scientists like to fill in these gaps by then creating a whole cluster of of genes that are named with the same idea even if at one point sort of the the analogy breaks down but it still makes sense then in the cluster of interacting genes okay so basically the take-home message here is that they managed to bypass the triploid block um in arabidopsis and they're like wow we're super cool we can do this so then they took it to a different species this is just another close relative of arabidopsis actually it's um capsella Capsella mm -hmm. rubella they use, which is the common name is pink shepherd's purse, but basically 
looks like an Arabidopsis. It's a crappy little weed um, in the wild. <laughs> yeah, it's purple. Uh, it's, it's more purple than Arabidopsis. Uh, it's, is it, though? Yeah, I've seen the picture on, on Wikipedia. It's it's uh, slightly more purple. It looks like sometimes but when you, you stress seen- Arabidopsis, it, it, it makes these an- uh, anthocyanins and it starts to become bluish purple as well. Um, and this plant looks like it's maybe it's just always stressed. It's maybe yeah, the- but that's exactly my point. Have you seen Arabidopsis in the wild? Because I think you're comparing like an Arabidopsis under low light greenhouse conditions, no stress, you know, beautiful lush green with like a shepherd's purse out in the wild who is just doing his best to survive. <laughs> and I think realistically, if you go and see Arabidopsis in the wild, there are like one tenth of the size you expect them to be. They're quite pink. Know, They're I've, like I've, hard and angry and bitter and like. <laughs> I, f- I found some. Um, I found some Arabidopsis in the wild that were nice and green. Uh, fair enough, they were smaller. And they, they were more nibbled on by insects um, than the ones in the greenhouse. Although we had like. I've I've seen some insect damage in a greenhouse as well, but yeah. So they they're using um, Capsella rubella and relative um, Capsella grandiflora, both of them closely related to Arabidopsis, and they could replicate the findings there as well, um, which shows that not only within um, a species, so within Arabidopsis, you can just find uh, a mutant and uh, wild type plant and make them cross with adding the chemical. You can actually do that with two. Um, two distinct species and and create crosses that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And this is then when it becomes really exciting for breeders to use this, te- this technology. <laughs> and I think that's also the take-home message of, um, of the paper, that they found a new and clever way to uh, add a tool to the breeder's tool set to cross plants that otherwise are incompatible because of their chromosome numbers. And the treatment, as we said, it's it's sort of reversible, um, maybe not completely, um, or at least we have to, f- to study more to figure out how, how reversible it is. Um, but the initial chemical doesn't remain in the system, and it changes the epigenetic information. So it's, it's really one of the... Uh, one of these rarer cases of having an epimutagenesis so changing the epigenetic information at will to have an effect that's then interesting to us um, for breeders or just to to make new crosses of plants yeah so that was the story called bypassing reproductive barriers in hybrid seeds using chemically induced epimutagenesis um, that came out in the plant cell either in November or in March depending on which of the two <laughs> publication dates we're following here this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins Okay, the first thing I wanted to start talking about when it comes to fun facts is not really that related to plants. Kind of, it's related to trees. Um, The Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew in London has just announced the winners of their treehouse contest. <laughs> um, This is really more of a visual one. So for those of you who like clicking on the links in our show notes, you can go to this page and you can see some pretty impressive treehouses. It's definitely above and beyond the normal thing, you know, plank of wood <laughs> on like nailed precariously onto a branch that you might have had growing up. <laughs> Super cool. But are these are like architectural tree houses? Sometimes I see them, you can rent them or book a holiday in them that are just like a wooden construction of a house, but then suspended in a tree. 
No, it's not like kind of a, a fancy glamping holiday thing. This is more like um, community involvement, playground slash architectural design linked to trees and mm -hmm. very, very design oriented, I would say. Oh, yeah, I'm seeing the pictures. Yeah, re really cool. Um, everybody should look at the pictures. It's it's really good. <laughs> um, I I have a story that maybe I start with this one. Um, I've, I just found this interesting because I'm really into TikTok for keeping my brain busy when I don't want to think about complicated stuff. Uh, and there has been a, um, a story that was actually published in, in, in the Nature blog about using TikTok for science communication, specifically for mm. physics in this case. So this, this wasn't for biology. Um, but I found this interesting uh, as a case study for other people who might want to do science communication as well or are thinking about using TikTok um, for that. Uh, so what they did is uh, here... In this campaign, they wanted, in the United Kingdom, they wanted to get people interested in physics that are usually not interested in physics. They realized that um, women and um, minorities of lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds uh, are underrepresented in the world of physics. You mostly find men from uh, sort of wealthy backgrounds in physics, or at least like well-off, um, uh, what's the word, like not, not middle, the... The middle part of the economic layer. I forgot the word there. But the middle class? Middle class. Middle class people and middle class men and uh, you find in physics. And they wanted to change that. I think this is something that is something to, to address. And so they, they bought a handful of influencers on TikTok that have already a large following. And then they had them do um, very simple physics experiments. So they, they told them just the basics about the experiment, uh, what to do, and like hashtags and stuff. But apart from that, they were um, they they could do their own story, their their own way of doing the content. Um, this cost them a couple tens of thousands of pounds to buy these influences, and this got them just shy of a thousand clicks on their website, um, which they were really happy about. This was an, an engagement rate of around eleven percent, and they said this is good in social media. Um, mm -hmm. And now they are wondering if they can see like an increase in sign up from kids like that they, they was specifically targeted to sort of younger kids or, or um, kids in school. And they want to see now if they have higher sign up ratings. But I found this interesting for the point of view for science communication is that they had to spend quite a lot of money to get just shy of a thousand clicks on their website to do this. And I, I think that in, in, in context of many sort of science communication programs that I experienced here in Germany, where thousands of pounds or tens of thousands of pounds are not in the budget and they still expect sort of similar outcomes. It just shows that for larger scale impact, you have to have spent significant amount of money. You can't just do this sort of on... For free, like this is something that you have to invest money in to 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 get that. Of course, there's other ways to do science communication as well. But I found it very interesting to have this full-on campaign that they analyzed and then published and and show like this is the resources that we spend. Mm. This is the outcome that we get from it, um, so that we can use it as a benchmark for other projects as well. Yeah, I also saw this when it came out and I was I was actually really surprised at how like blunt they were about the amount of money spent. Like usually that's kind of a bit more hidden. Yeah. And they were really like, Yes, we spent this much money and you know, we would spend this money again basically like they were not like, Oh, we are embarrassed how much we spent. It was kind of like, Yeah. 
Um, but it's also one of those things where the aim is, I mean, clicks on the website is nice, but the ultimate aim is, you know, to get sort of a shift in mentality in, in like at a society level where you sort of now link physics to a young female cool person as opposed to seeing it only as like old white dudes so this is like there's sort of this broader aim which is also a bit hard to measure um yeah did you did you happen to look at the TikTok videos? Do you remember what no. what they were doing in the TikTok videos? Um, I, I they said in the article what they were doing, but I <laughs> I didn't actually look at them. I don't even know if they were linked to that. I could have looked at, and so I didn't search for them. No. So you saw them? What did they do? I, I saw one where there was like a young girl holding you know a, a bottle of water upside down with something you know suctioned onto it and showing that the the power of physics. Like she was holding it above <laughs> her mother's head and she was saying, you know, by the power of physics, this stays sucked on this paper and the water doesn't like fall onto your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was this kind of like, mm-hmm. I think that I think it's like quite good. You would keep on watching that. Um, yeah. Just like subtle physics getting in there. So I, yeah, that's nice. I'm sometimes jealous of the field of physics for the very um, and exciting experiments that they can do. They've got lasers, man. Pew, pew. Not only, like, I've, I've recently heard about an experiment which is um, technically very simple, but um, to me very impressive about the air pressure where you just take a, a garden hose that's closed on one hand, open on another. You completely fill that with water, put that in a bucket of water, and then you just, like, pull up the garden hose while the open end stays in the water. And then you pull it up, and then when you reach around 10 meters high... Um, and you go above that, suddenly you see that there is a gas or, or an empty space on top of the thing because the, the air pressure can only push the water so far up this tube. And this is a very visual way of showing how air pressure works. And then, of course, that it, that it forms a vacuum that is then filled with water vapor. And um, it's just it's just a very easy to understand experiment when you see that happen in in real life and i was thinking like what could i do in biology that's as impressive because we always have to wait for things to grow we we can't like in in, apart from very few exceptions we rarely have experiments that you can do in like 15 minutes and then see the outcome immediately in biology most of the time you have to let something grow let something react um see some adaptation over a longer time um and maybe apart from mimosas or some other touch sensitive I mean, plants. Yeah. Uh, You're doing the DNA extraction usually with straw like strawberries yeah. and, and dishwasher detergent. Um I think, you know, biology is teaching important skill about delayed gratification. That's <laughs> yes. that's what biology's got that physics is not giving, frankly. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just like I want I want I, I don't know. It goes too far. Um, <laughs> I just want easy physics experiments, but for biology. <laughs> if anyone knows some really cool, fun biology teaching lessons, which go beyond the, the normal extracting of DNA from strawberry or wheat germs, please let your arm know. He yes, wants, please. Please tell me. Things to do. <laughs> Um, I was looking at, I mean, this is a very small comment, I was looking at sort of a, an applied ecology paper, it's actually in the Journal of Applied Ecology, um, and it was looking, it's t- entitled The Disproportionate Value of Weeds, they've put weeds in little averted commas, as pollinate, uh, to pollinators and biodiversity. And it was just um, sort of doing some surveys and looking at how things that are classified as weeds actually have... Um, a really nice abundance and diversity of pollinators that um, visit them. So 
they said that weeds, you know, they they quite wild, wildly spread. So they can be have generalist pollinators. They're found everywhere. This can be quite helpful. You know, there's good connectivity, um, and also they they give quite good rewards. Um, weeds mm-hmm. tend to give quite a lot of nectar. Apparently, I didn't know that was a thing. I guess that's one of the reasons weeds can be quite successful. And then they were then comparing this to the fact that, you know, there's maybe 10 million pounds in the UK spent a year trying to control this certain types of weeds. They're called injurious weeds. So there's like actually classification and I want to come back to that. Um, whereas like the, the pollinators also have a, an ecological, a, a sort of a money value you can put on them. So like they have ecosystem services that are provided by pollinators. So they're saying, you know, maybe we're spending too much time getting rid of these weeds when actually we could be seeing them as something that benefits and helps support the pollinators, which themselves have a value. Um, what I liked about that is that I found out that in the 1959, the United Kingdoms uh, put forward a Weeds Act in which they legally deemed certain plant species as injurious. Um, and they were harmful to agricultural production. And based on this, and there's like really there's a thing happening. I can put you to the legislation documents at .gov.uk. You know, it was sort of the responsibility of anybody who has those plants growing on the land to get rid of them. So Mm. you can get served a notice that says that you as the occupier has to take action to remove those weeds. And if not, you have like done an offence. You have, you know, you're going against (laughs) this Weeds Act law. And I just thought that was... I can understand it. It makes sense. It's one of these things where, like, you know, if if the weeds get out of control here, I mean, I can see it in my own garden when I don't. Yeah, it then <laughs> spreads to the neighboring gardens um, or fields. Um, but yeah, I didn't know that was a thing that happened in the fifties. Yeah. I think that's quite like yeah. the people versus the weeds kind of situation. <laughs> when you started about an ancient uh, or like an older, it's not ancient, an older law in in, in British law, I expected to say it's, um, by law, all of the weeds belong to the queen and she can do with them whatever she pleases, <laughs> which is usually the laws that I hear about. I think it'll be the opposite here. I think it's like, you know, you are doing an offense <laughs> against the queen if you have these injurious... You bring disgrace to the queen, so yeah, you better take exactly care of that. it. <laughs> Um, I have now an actual plant science fact um, about grainy ice. Um, have you ever had um, a tub of ice cream that's been sitting too long in the freezer? Does this happen to you? Or is uh, does ice cream not stand a chance with you and it, it will never get old? I'm not sure. Like, should I? Yes, this sometimes happens to me. I too am played <laughs> by grainy ice cream. Do you have the solution for my problem? Is that what I should be? Is that how I do this game? I mean, I, I, I wanted honesty, but we can also just do this. Um, uh, I, I have to say, like, I don't care that much for ice cream <clears throat> so that I actually sometimes do have very old containers of ice cream in the fridge. And at one point, it, it's not silky smooth anymore it starts to become grainy and uh, yeah less nice on uh, in the mouth and that's because <laughs> there's ice creams forming and there's actually a boundary that we where we can start to taste them or feel them rather that's uh, I, f- mm-hmm. sorry sorry carry on that's 50 micrometers in size when when the crystals get larger than 50 micrometers then we can start to feel them in our mouth as this sandy coarse texture and then we think oh this has been in the freezer for too long. Um, okay. Better, I don't know, 
throw it out, melt it down into a milkshake or whatever you do with old ice cream or just suck it up and just eat it. Um, and so manufacturers, they're putting all kinds of things in the ice cream to try to extend the period until the ice crystals become bigger because they just continue to grow um, uh, when when it's frozen. They use things like gum, for example, um, and that extends the shelf life a little bit. But now researchers um, have found uh, a new material made from cellulose, so from plants, from wood fibers, um, cellulose nanocrystals that they can mix in with the ice cream and that keeps these ice crystals um, below that crucial 50 micrometer size mm -hmm. even at long freezing t uh, times so with this potentially i mean they tested this only on freezing uh, just a sugar solution in water and added these cellulose nanocrystals and they could see that they the crystals don't get bigger um, so they have antifreeze pro uh, properties similar to these antifreeze peptides that i think we talked about in the past um, and are Potentially for the food industry, very exciting. Um, of course, we have to test them for their safety and stuff. But uh, maybe in a couple of years, we will have ice cream that will st can stay forever in the freezer without ever getting grainy and crystally and disgusting. Mm. Thank you, plants. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is also like not the first time you've done something about plants somehow making better ice cream like somehow this feels vaguely familiar i had something about cellulose before i had something about cellulose being used for eco-friendly glitter where they made sheets of cellulose and then broke this up and then you had this shimmering it wasn't, effect it wasn't that it was ice cream i'm sure you've done ice cream anyway Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah my fact is a little bit related to a lyophores do you know what a lyophores um four is something about light light emitting maybe um, Elio, I have no idea what that stands for, so I don't know what that is. Uh, it's actually um, sort of oil sacks. Um, <laughs> I think that's the best. Oil sacks. That's a, that's a beautiful word. Yeah. yeah um, it's a specialized epidermal secretory structure. So basically a little oil squirty <laughs> thing um, within flowers. And so this is actually, you know, flowers, when they're trying to attract pollinators, they often have some sort of reward. We just discussed this. And usually it's nectar, so basically sugar. Sometimes it's pollen, which in itself has sort of, you know, nutritious substances like fats and stuff inside it, which gives nice things for the the insects that are doing all the sexy labor for the flowers um <laughs> but some of them some flowers also offer lipids or oils or even like waxes or resins as reward which is something that i hadn't really i didn't mm -hmm. really know about honestly is that why um, we have oil plants that we can then take oil from is that did we took advantage of this i mean maybe i'm going too far maybe we just bred them to have more are you oil. talking about olives if, for example olives or um Sunflowers, no, think, you can make oil from rapeseed. So, so, no, no, what you're thinking of is usually oils inside seeds, which is like the nutrition for the next generation. So that mm -hmm. makes a bit more, like, that's like, you know, packing, basically it's the egg yeah, yolk fair. of the egg, but in the seed it's like they can have fats inside and they can also have like sugars if it's a fruit. So yeah, this is a bit different. This is like something that's actually being offered up to the pollinating insect. And it's, again, I didn't really know this was even a thing that here have some oils, um, but apparently it's it's risen independently at least 28 different times. Um, so they, you know, producing oils in your flowers has come and gone. Yeah, come 28 times and also been lost multiple times in evolutionary history. Um, and 
it's a bit weird. So if you're producing this, you sort of need a special type of bee. I mean, it's not like a species. It's a sort of a group of bees, which unsurprisingly are called oil bees. Um, <laughs> so it's not your normal type of honey bees. Apparently, they like honey. Um, they like nectar um, and pollen. But also, yeah, it seems like, you know, honeybees can actually get the, the fatty bits they need from pollen itself. Pollen has a lot of lipids and fatty acids and things. So they don't really need oil. They're just eating the pollen. Um, so it's it's a bit of a weird one, honestly. And even with the, the oil bees, it doesn't seem like they're necessarily eating the the oils and fats. They might be sort of using it a little bit for their nests. Mm-hmm instead um like so they build their nest they reinforce um their hives but so far and this is like with a 2017 reference so fairly like five years ago looks like they're not eating oils um they just like like to build with them Mm -hmm. which is yeah anyway so this paper (laughs) (laughs) honestly this is one of those things where the the paper itself um it's looking at the interaction between a cymbidium so it's a an orchid and a certain type of bee, um, Apis serrana, for those of you playing Spot the Bee at home. And there they sort of found that there was this um, oil giving, mm-hmm. I don't know, a symbolic oil, not symbolic. Um, <laughs> it's a ceremony. <laughs> like ceremonial is what I wanted. A ceremonial <laughs> oil, oil giving that's happening. They're lighting a oh, little geez. oil candle and um, singing the a- ancient bee chants and then. They exchanged some oil for some pollination. Yeah. Um, it's a bit surprising because what does a bee want to do with the oil? It tends to be the the main thing. It's also it's, what how are you carrying it? You don't really have like the right saddle bags on your feet on your legs. <laughs> you know, bees the bees' knees, they put the pollen in the little little saddle bags on their legs and they don't really have oil saddle bags. I guess you'd need like a more of a, a flask like situation. I'm not sure how a bee would get that on its knees. It's a whole complex situation. So it's a bit like I, anyway, I, I've been can you can tell from my, my bull crapping that I have no I haven't read the whole um, article. It was just something where I I didn't really know much about this oil ceremonial giving that's happening, and it's cool. I, I love that, you know, you learn the... Yeah. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> I have a follow-up to something we said at some point in the past. Um, at least it's something that I like to read about and bring up um, again. Um, it's the question whether or not houseplants can actually purify the air around us. And there have been studies in the past with... Um, very conflicting results and um, a lot of these conflicts stem from the fact that they looked at different ways of purifying the air. Some of them looked at moisture content or oxygen content. Some of them looked at uh, volatile organic compounds um, that are, for example, emitted from our furniture that are potentially harmful to our to our health. Um, and in this study that they now did, they looked at nitrogen dioxide, um, uh, NO2, and they realized that in, in the study they could show that um, NO2 can actually be um, taken up by the plants in an unknown process uh, and then remove up to 20% of the NO2 in the air uh, with potted houseplants. And... So this is just sort of another entry in in the saga of 
should we keep house plants for air purification purposes or not? Um, I think in this study they also looked at um, these volatile organic compounds and saw that there is no reduction of them. Um, so overall, probably it's it's not a bad idea to have plants um, in your enclosed living spaces or offices and stuff for air quality, but don't expect them to take up all of the sort of toxic volatile compounds that you find in the air and have the, the plants purify them, maybe rather take measures to not emit them in the air in the first place, instead of thinking that your spider lily or something else is taking sucking them all up for you. Because... It probably isn't doing that, but maybe it's doing that for the NO2. And one more thing that I want to just briefly mention is something that I didn't know existed, is that there is a plant-based COVID-19 vaccine, and it has been now approved mm. by Health Canada. So in Canada, you can now have um, a COVID-19 vaccine that's produced in Nicotiana Bentamiana, which is, I think, called tree tobacco. Um, is it? Plantamiana, is that a tree? I don't know. It's like a relative to Nicotiana tabacum, which we used to work with in the lab. No, Tegan is shaking her head. It's not the tree tobacco. Tree tobacco is something else. Um, but it's a tobacco relative. Um, it's a very commonly used plant in biotechnology because it gro grows with a lot of biomass and we have good tools to use it. And I think, so. I think Benth is the Aussie one, right? Maybe it is. Um, but it's. Um, yeah, it's it's a way now to produce the COVID vaccine and it has now been approved um, for use in humans. And now in Canada, you can also get plant-based COVID vaccine. Um, yeah, which doesn't mean that it's like the, the plants have an immune response against COVID. It just means <clears throat> we, we managed to put the important bits of the COVID vaccine in the plant genome and have it produced and then isolated from plants. Nicotiana benthamiana, colloquially known as benth or benthi, is a close relative of tobacco and species of Nicotiana, indigenous to Australia. Mm -hmm. That's actually yeah. all I wanted to say. It's Australian indigenous. <laughs> and it's not tree tobacco. Um, I should look up what tree is tobacco glauca? is. Yeah, glauca, that is. Yeah, glauca. We had some people work with glauca as well back in the lab, and that's why I confused it. Um, yeah, but um, a tobacco relative often used in biotechnology. Oh, I wanted to quickly mention we've we've this is kind of a throwback. We mentioned that there's a new type of pineapple that is pink coloured. We we mentioned this in podcasts many months ago now, maybe six months ago. Well, um, pink pineapple. Even, yeah, even longer, I think. The one where you can't they sell it without the head, so you can't grow it at home. Yeah. Um, no, for sustainability reasons, Yoram. That's why they're not giving you the head, not not because of protecting <laughs> their property. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that IFL Science picked up that story um, based on the fact that somebody posted on Instagram that it looks like it's made of human flesh, which I think is delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray. Um, I then have a cat fact if we want to go with a cat fact. <laughs> cat fact. I also found the story trolling IFL Science. Um, so apparently there is a, a journal called the CRISPR Journal. Have we discussed this? Yoram, do you know about this? You love CRISPR. Um, the CRISPR Journal. And um, they have published a thing just a couple of days back called The Evolutionary Biology and Gene Editing of Cat Allergen FELD1. So for those of you who don't know, this FELD1 is, FELD1 is this protein that is in the saliva and apparently also the tears of cats. 
how do we know that? Why are we making cats cry to see if it has fell in it? And this is kind of the thing that is actually the allergen. So people will sometimes think that they have an allergy to the fur, but it's not the fur itself. It's sort of this protein. And it just so happens that cats really like to lick everything. So they just like smear themselves with allergens um, <laughs> because they're passive aggressive like that. So basically, they, people didn't really know what this gene actually does apart from make people sneeze. So they don't know the function of this protein within the cat itself. Um, so this was now doing sort of a look at different domestic cats and seeing if maybe we can get rid of it. Um, mm -hmm. And then also seeing if you can knock it out using CRISPR-Cas9. And they did in vitro knockout, so not in the cat itself yet. Um and yeah, so basically, because the gene doesn't look like it's conserved, it's probably not essential. So probably we can knock it out without knocking the cats out themselves. Um, and then they sort of did sort of these in vitro knockout tests to see if they could get rid of it. Um, so they're saying that this is a rational and viable candidate for deletion of the gene, which could hopefully create pussy cats that are not allergenic. I mean, there are hypoallergenic cats already, right, that are bred to have less of the protein. I don't know if they have less of the protein or if they lick themselves less. I don't know what what they're bred to, but they are sold as good for people with cat allergies. Um, apparently there's food products. I'm just looking at this article. Apparently there's food products that contain antibodies um, that can reduce allergen indigen levels, apparently, and there's also vaccines. I did not know this was a thing we were doing to cats. Yeah, I mean, cats um, really have us under control. Like, the length we go to to make sure... in our lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have to use modern CRISPR technology just to make have more people have cats instead of accepting it. Some people just can't have cats. It's like, no, 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 we need, we need the cats. They are crucial. <laughs> okay, so this is the thing. There was already... Um, this looks like it was a couple of years ago, maybe? Yeah, 2019 even. Um, there was a vaccine called HypoCat. Um, that, yeah, it's a vaccine that makes very high levels of antibodies. The antibodies bind and neutralize the FELD1. Um, so the allergen, the allergen protein, um, which is theoretically good so i guess we kind of i mean so this is this was a paper that was looking at the whether the gene was conserved which suggests whether it's like essential or not but i guess if we were already injecting antibodies that knocks like effectively removes this protein into the cat anyway we kind of had some ideas yeah although i mean you know some things are only necessary at certain life stages so maybe it would have turned out to be a, a protein that the cat needed as it was born and then didn't need it you know we yeah. don't know um yeah Cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. No, looking forward for more people having cats. Um, I think as a cat owner, I think overall it's a net benefit to the world. If <laughs> more people have, I already sent this this paper to people I know who are allergic to cats. Maybe yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think with that we are at the end of our show tonight. Um, if you want to get in touch with us and. Send me cool science experiments you can do in biology. Uh, you can talk to me on Twitter. That's at Plants for Pets. Uh, if you want to talk to me, I'm usually on Instagram. Sometimes I'm on Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. And we also have a website where we have a nice back catalogue of random blog posts, stories, and also some photographs of cool plant things and facts. 
Yeah, that's at plantsandpipettes.com. Uh, there you also find the podcast and the show notes and all of this stuff. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Goodbye.